there, nerdlings. This is Ash. And this is Matt. And you're listening to Crime Time Nerds, a sister podcast, which is now a member of the Spilled Potion Independent Arts Collective. You can check out all the awesome things the collective is up to, as well as the other fantastically nerdy podcasts that we've partnered up with over at SpilledPotion.com. And now, nerdlings, let's grab our flashlights and join us as we venture down into the dark world of true crime together. Before we get going on our case today, Ash and I have an episode trailer from our good friend Kevin over at the jury room from his most recent episode, which is on Dennis Rader, more commonly known as BTK, a true, true monster. Seriously, folks, definitely go give the jury room a listen as we're obsessed with it. I'll put a link in our show notes for everyone, but genuinely, we can't rave about this enough. So definitely give his trailer a quick listen. All serial killers live next door to someone. And Dennis Rader was no different. Better known under the pseudonym BTK. Bind, torture, kill. Raider was an expert at the double life. Devoted dad by day. Savage killer at night. He managed to get away with murder for three entire decades. He built his children a treehouse that he later stashed Polaroids of his victims in. He calmed his daughter's fears when she told him she was afraid of the serial killer on the loose. The only thing I can figure out, the killer later said, is that I have compartmentalized somewhere in my body. I can live a normal life and quickly switch from one gear to the next. I guess... That's why I got away with it. Would you be fooled by Raiders Act? Find out on the next episode of The Jury Room. Welcome, nerdlings, to another episode of Crime Time Nerds. Today's episode is a doozy as we're talking about an old-timey case and an old-timey serial killer, which actually has a bit of a twist to it. Today, we are going to discuss the vile evilness of a serial killer that started many, many of their heinous crimes in the 1890s and lasted for over a decade until a showdown that ended in flames and more questions than answers. There's often a stigma that only men are capable of the dark, brutal murders associated with a serial killer. But that stigma is misleading, as women are just as capable of being serial killers as men. True. Criminal justice historian Peter Vronsky actually noted in his research book, Female Serial Killers, Why Women Become Monsters. He noted that roughly 16% of serial killers are in fact women, which averages out to be about one in six serial killers being female since the date of 1820 forwards. The motives for female serial killers are also different than that of their male counterparts, according to Vronsky. Female serial killers, quote, prefer to murder their male intimates or family members, while recent data indicates that currently female serial killers marginally prefer strangers as victims, and that historically in the United States, 53% of female serial killers had murdered at least one adult female and 32% at least one female child. In our episode today, we're wading through the dark mind of just one of these serial killers. Today, we will be discussing female serial killer Belle Gunness, a truly trash human who let her own greed corrupt her and draw her into committing several gruesome murders throughout the late 1800s. This is truly a sad case, as many of Gunness's alleged victims were actually children. So we just wanted to give a quick disclaimer for folks, as these murders are pretty heinous. Today's episode does deal with the murder of several innocent victims, including children and babies. We completely understand that this may not actually be an episode for you, especially if this is going to trigger you in any sort of way. And if that's the case, just come back and join us for a future episode instead. And with that, nerdlings, it's time to leave the light, grab your candles, and follow us down the darkened paths 
of Selbu, Norway in 1859 with the birth of Brynhild Paulsdatter Storseth, who would later be known in life as Belle Gunnis, one of the world's worst female serial killers. One thing we should note before getting into this case is that a lot of these names are Norwegian in origin. So if we mispronounce any of these, we truly apologize and totally feel free to let us know just how actually to pronounce the words, just as we'd be curious. And we always like to know how to properly say these, even if we make a mistake. So thanks. And with that, Val Gunnis, who was born Brynhild Paulsdatter Storseth in Selbu, Norway on November 11th, 1859. Her family lived as tenants on a small farm owned by the Storseth family. Belle's family was not a wealthy one, and as a young woman, Belle was hired out to nearby farmers to work as a cattle girl or a dairymaid, as was common in those days. One early photo of Brynhild, taken around the time she immigrated to the U.S., shows a very stern-looking young woman, who was described as, quote, stout and matronly. There isn't much documentation on Brynhild's early years, According to the book Hell's Princess, The Mystery of Belle Gunnis by Harold Schechter, while Brynhild, also known as Belle, lived in Norway, many of her neighbors described Brynhild as a, quote, very bad human being, capricious and extremely malicious. She had unpretty habits, always in the mood for dirty tricks, talked little, and was a liar already as a child, unquote. In 1881, at the age of 21, Brynhild left Norway, traveling by boat from Trondheim to the city of Hull, aboard the steamship Tasso. She would then sail on a transatlantic steamer vessel to the United States. When Brynhild arrived in the United States, she would have been dropped at one of the major cities, which would be either Quebec, New York, or Boston. And from there, many Norwegians would head out towards the Midwest. For Brynhild, that would mean the city of Chicago, Illinois. So this was a time in history where many folks were immigrating from their homelands to come to the United States in order to make better lives for themselves and their families due to perceived opportunities that the U.S. offered. At this time, there were 562 Norwegians who lived in Chicago. This gave Norwegians the third largest immigrant population in the city after German and Irish immigrants. The notion to come to the United States had started several years earlier for Brynhild as her older sister Olina, who also changed her name and would become Nellie upon immigrating to the U.S., had come to the United States and settled herself in Chicago, and then subsequently got married to a man named John R. Larson. Nellie invited her younger sister, who was younger by 10 years, to come and join her and her family in the United States, and specifically in Chicago, in order to begin her own new life. Brynhild chose to take the opportunity, and that's how she found herself sailing across the Atlantic Ocean to begin a new life. After settling into Chicago, Brynhild decided to change her name to Bella Peterson, and worked for a time as a servant girl, as many immigrant women from overseas did. Brynhild, who is now at this time known as Bella, made no secret that she wanted to get married and that she was looking to settle down with a partner. According to her sister Nellie, quote, My sister was insane on the subject of money. She would do anything to get it, unquote. Nellie was also quoted as stating, quote, She never seemed to care for a man for his own self, only for the money or luxury he was able to give her, unquote. In 1884, Bella got her wish, as she met and chose to marry a man named Mads Sorensen, who was from Drammen, Norway, and he was five years her senior. Mads worked as a night watchman for a department store, which was called the Mandel Brothers Department Store. The couple was married in the Evangelical Lutheran Belthania Church in March of 1884. The Sorensens were able to purchase a home in the city of Chicago, where they were able to put down roots. While they were able to settle down and purchase a home, it seemed that everything was going well for Bella. The couple made decent enough money for that time period with Mads having a steady job, and Bella was able to spend a lot more time with her sister and her sister's family. And it was no secret that Bella wanted to have children of her own. But after many years of trying, it seemed that she was not ever able to conceive her own children. During this time, Bella spent a lot of time with the children from her church, as well as spending a lot of time with her niece, Olga, who was the youngest daughter from her sister Nellie's five kids. The sisters actually had a very bitter battle over Bella's possessiveness over Nellie's youngest daughter, Olga, 
It even got to the point where Bella demanded that her sister Nellie allow her to adopt Olga in order for Bella to raise her. Obviously, Nellie refused to allow this and wouldn't just give Bella her four-year-old daughter, which seriously, I do not blame this woman in the least. So this would cause a rift between the sisters and Bella would barely speak to her sister after this incident. In 1891, Bella Sorensen decided that she would adopt a child in order to make her family and her dreams complete. There was a couple known as the Olsons who lived close to the Sorensons, and they became good friends with Bella and Mads. The couple had a young infant daughter that Bella had fallen absolutely in love with, and the girl's name was Jenny. The Olsons fell into hard times, and this was because Mrs. Olson happened to fall ill, and it turned out she was dying. Bella begged the dying woman to give her her young daughter in order for Bella to raise her as her own. In his grief, Jenny's father, Anton Olson, allowed for Bella to take Jenny in as her own. Bella often would bring Jenny to see her father, and he noted that Jenny was always well taken care of with nice clothes and that she did seem happy. After several years passed, Anton remarried and wanted to try and regain custody of his young daughter. Unfortunately, Bella would have none of this, however, and she even took Anton to court, and she actually won the custody battle for young Jenny, allowing her to pretty much continue raising Jenny as her own. It was in 1894 when Bella and Mads would have enough money to buy a candy store where they would sell everyday items. It's basically like the things you'd find in a convenience store nowadays. And while they were able to do this, the candy store never seemed to grow and it just never was doing really well. And it seemed as if the store, despite being in a heavy commercial location, just was never able to get ahead. It was thought that this bothered Bella greatly as Bella was very focused on money and material possessions. And the store not doing well ate into the Sorensen's funds daily. Interesting enough, it was about one year after the Sorensen's purchased the candy store that a mysterious fire broke out in the actual store. And the only person who was there at the time of the fire was Bella and her young daughter Jenny, who was only three at this time. Unfortunately for the Sorensons, the fire damaged the building beyond repair, and according to Bella, a, quote, small kerosene lamp had exploded, unquote. One thing of note is that when investigators were looking through the store's remains, they were actually never able to find any evidence of the kerosene lamp that just happened to explode, and they found no shards of glass, nothing like that. Unfortunately, there wasn't much evidence to prove that the fire had been anything but an accident, and so the insurance company had no other choice but to pay the Sorensons for the building. It wasn't long after that Mads and Bella sold what little remained of the candy store to the brother of the original owner. And with their newly acquired insurance money from the candy store fire, the Sorensons were able to buy a new home in Austin, Illinois. The area was known to be a well-to-do suburb, and the house the Sorensons purchased was a three-story house that had bay windows. With a nicer home and a nice suburban house to live in, the Sorensons decided to adopt four more children during the years of 1896 to 1889. The four children were named Caroline, Myrtle, Axel, and Lucy, who were more than likely orphan children that Bella had decided to take in and raise as her own. Two of these children, who were both young infants, died under Bella's care. Caroline, who was only five months old, died in 1896, and Axel, who was only three months old at the time, died in 1898. It was said that Caroline died of entercolitis, which is an acute inflammation of the bowels, and it was thought that Axel passed away from hydrocephalus, which is fluid buildup in the brain. One thing that is very important to note is that this was the 1800s, so children, especially infants, did often pass away from diseases and issues such as these, so the children's deaths weren't considered suspicious at the time when they, when they first happened. So Mads began to work at the Chicago and Northwestern Railroad and was bringing home good money for the time, which was about $12 a week. In 1897, Mads and Bella were approached by the Yukon Mining and Trading Company, which was looking to have folks go and mine in New Mexico, as well as lands they owned in Alaska. It would send miners to Alaska in order to mine for gold for up to one year. After that year, which would begin in April of 1898, Mads would be paid the same as the other miners in the camp, and he would also receive one-fourth interest on all of the mines that were located near his camp during that time. 
as well as 2,800 shares of stock in the company. During this time, the company also agreed that because Bella would be alone with no breadwinner, that they would actually pay Bella $35 a month, as well as pay some of her additional funds into the Sorensen's bank account to be mad salary while he was away in Alaska. The Sorensen's had been known to be overly concerned with wealth, and the couple agreed that they would also invest money of their own into mad supplies for the year while he was away. So the couple signed over a promissory note to the Yukon Mining and Trading Company for $700, as well as used the deed to their home for collateral security. Poof, $700 in 1898? That's a ton of money. One year later, in April of 1898, Mads went to go fulfill his contract as had been agreed upon. Unfortunately, no word ever came from the Yukon Mining and Trading Company. After two months of waiting to hear back from the company, the Sorensons obtained a lawyer to research just who the Yukon Mining Company was, and that lawyer was able to request and research the Yukon Mining Company's books. It was at this time that the lawyer was able to confirm that the Yukon Mining and Trading Company had no actual mines in New Mexico or in Alaska, and in fact, the whole thing was a scam. The Yukon Mining Company immediately had turned around and taken that promissory note from the Sorensons that was for $700, and they sold that as well as the deed on the property to a real estate agent and mortgage broker named Emanuel Hogginson for $500. What this did was set the Sorensons up to have to pay Hogginson $700 back as a promissory note is basically, it's it's a loan. It's You can kind of think of it as that. And they would also have to pay interest to Hogginson on top of that $700. Otherwise, they could lose their home as they had used the home to back the promissory note. Whew. The Sorensons ended up suing the Yukon Mining Company, and they eventually won that lawsuit, which kept Hogginson from being able to utilize the promissory note. It did also hamper Bella Sorensen's goals of becoming wealthy, as both she and Mads had looked at this deal as a way to make their fortunes. Another thing to note, though, is that on April 10th of 1900, one year later, in fact, a small fire broke out in the Sorensen's home. This fire was reportedly due to a, quote, defective heating apparatus, unquote. Unlike with the candy store, the Sorensen's home was able to be saved, but they lost about $650 worth of goods and items. That's an interesting number. It was very lucky for the Sorensen's that they just so happened to have insurance on the property, and so the Sorensen's were able to, yet again, receive a fairly large size insurance settlement. Ooh, yeah, these two. Yeah, geez, they're just making it out on top every time. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, they're definitely gaming the system. It's it's pretty evident that, I mean, that's a lot of fires in a very short amount of time. Oh, yeah, they're definitely like the earliest con artists. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. These two. I think they were well matched. I do. I, I think he was he was as shady as she was. So I think that they kind of got each other. Oh, yeah. They went together like peanut butter and jelly. Yep. So it was around this time of the fire that Mads ended up having a life insurance policy put into place. This seems like a really bad idea already. The policy was worth $2,000, and it just so happened that the insurance policy would expire on July 30th of 1900. Mads decided that he would let, you know, the $2,000 life insurance policy lapse, as he ended up taking out a new one, which was for $3,000. Remember, this is a super, super large amount of money for that time. And it just so happened that there would be only one day, and one day only, that the two life insurance policies would happen to overlap. That day was July 30th of 1900. So interesting enough that on the exact day of July 30th, 1900, literally to the day, that both insurance policies would happen to overlap, and it was the one day that both would be in place the local physician received an urgent summons from Mrs. Bella Sorensen. When the young physician named Dr. J.C. Miller arrived, he found Mads, fully clothed, deceased, lying on the Sorensen's bed. Bella reported to Dr. Miller that Mads had been fighting through a nasty, nasty cold, and that very day had actually come home from work complaining of a headache. Bella, in her desire to help her 
poor, poor ailing husband had given him a dose of quinine powder and then went down to make dinner for the family. When she returned upstairs after making the family's dinner, she stated that she found him dead at that time. And so the doctors labeled Mad's death as a cerebral hemorrhage and Bella, who had just so happened to be the sole beneficiary of both of those life insurance policies, was able to inherit all of that money due to her extraordinary luck that Mads ended up passing away on the very day that both of those policies just so happened to overlap. Whew. You know, folks can't see this, but like I've literally been air quoting pretty much everything <laughs> within this case the whole time. Like, it's just one of those things where this woman is something. And and I know this case super, super well, but man, when you read it out loud, it's just, it's it's bananas. It's absolutely bananas that, that she was able to get away with this. Yeah, this is just so unbelievable. This, this woman is just so surreal. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. She's brave. She's really brave. Yeah, and it's just so crazy that she had the wits to, like, scheme this all together and just... Right? Like, there's no way. There's no way. There's one day that they're both overlapped and it just so happens. Yep. Yeah. So she planned it. It's crazy. And she knew exactly how to to kind of, she knew how to portray herself as a victim and a kind of, um, I don't want to say dumb herself down, but she knew how to play very innocent. And she utilized that to use her grief as ways to get out of maybe drawing attention to things that maybe people would have questioned if she hadn't played that card. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I mean, back then, females weren't seen as a threat at all. Right, right. It was a very different world. We don't agree with this, but it was a very different world. So no one was looking at a wife and at this point grieving widower and mother as a suspect. Exactly. And like you said, we don't agree with this, but back then they'd probably say, oh, a female would never be able to survive without a husband. Something like that. Yeah. 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 It's, mm-hmm. it's crazy. She knew what she was doing. Absolutely. She did. <laughs> so now that we've determined that Bella Sorensen, later known as Belle Gunness, had a ton of sketchy history and luck up to this point, this story gets even wilder. So buckle up, nerdlings. So keep in mind that at this point, Bella has had two infant deaths that have happened while in her care. Her husband had just had a suspicious death recently, and she has had two questionable house fires. Bella Sorensen made a ton of money on a ton of misfortune during that time period. It was no surprise that folks in town were starting to talk about Miss Sorensen and her terrible bad luck and fortune that she'd recently acquired. So since the neighbors were getting suspicious of all these deaths that had seemed to happen of late to Bella, Bella decided that it was time to get out of the area and go somewhere new. Bella took her three remaining foster children and used the insurance money to purchase a farm in LaPorte, Indiana. Bella, Jenny, Myrtle, and Lucy moved in November of 1901. Bella decided, though, that she didn't want just a new house. She also decided she wanted a new name and identity. And so she yet again changed her name to be the more Americanized name of Belle. Things were looking up yet again for Belle Sorensen. It turned out that having a decent amount of money and a large amount of land could be quite a desirable quality for many eligible bachelors during that time. Many years before Belle and her then-husband Mads had taken on a boarder for a short amount of time. That boarder's name was Peter Gunnis. A handsome man from Oslo who stayed with the Sorensons for a brief amount of time. Now that Belle was single and had a large farm, she decided it was time to reacquaint herself for the handsome Peter Gunness. The two hit it off again. It turned out that Peter's wife had recently died and left him with two young daughters to raise. And so in April 1902, Belle married Peter Gunness in Laporte, taking his two young daughters to live on the 42-acre Laporte farm. Belle Sorensen was now officially the infamous Belle Gunness, who would forever go down in history as one of the worst serial killers of all time. Within one week of Peter and Belle's wedding, Peter's youngest daughter, who was only seven months old, mysteriously died. The doctors listed her cause of death as, quote, edema of the lungs, unquote. She was buried in Chicago with the other two infant children, who had died while in Belle Gunness's care. 
It was eight months later when more tragedy would befall the folks in Belle Gunness's care. One evening, the neighbors to Belle Gunness were woken up by a loud banging on their front door. When they opened the front door, they found Jenny, Belle's foster daughter, standing on their front porch. Jenny told them that they needed to help as her new father of only eight months, Peter Gunness, had, quote, burned himself, unquote. The neighbor and his son ran to the Gunness's farm and discovered Peter Gunness lying face down in the Gunness parlor. The neighbor checked Peter Gunness to see if he still had a pulse and was unable to find one. Peter was also not responding to the neighbor's questions, and so the son went and retrieved the town's physician, Dr. Bo Bowell. The doctor was able to examine Peter Gunness, and it was at this time that it was noted that Peter had a large wound that was caked with blood and his nose was broken and bent to one side. Dr. Bowell was thought to have suspected immediately that Peter Gunness had been murdered. Belle was in hysterics at this point, and Dr. Bowell sat her down to try and get answers from her as to what had happened to her husband, Peter Gunness. Bowell was able to learn that Peter had apparently gone into the kitchen to get his shoes, which were in front of the stove, and apparently the meat grinder, which resided on the top of the shelf that was just above the stove, fell and landed on Peter's head. The grinder also managed to spill a hot brine that was on the stove cooking and that had scalded the back of Peter's neck. Peter managed to get up and told Bell that even though he had terrible injuries, he was okay and that he was going to be all right. He told Bell that he just needed to go lay down and rest. According to Bell, it was a few hours later when she found Peter sprawled on the parlor floor where the doctor currently was examining him. At this point, most folks in town and even local newspapers were proclaiming that Peter Gunness had been murdered. After an autopsy was conducted on Peter Gunness, Dr. Bowell determined that he could not find any evidence of Peter having been scalded or burned. He determined that Peter's body showed evidence of being beaten or hit with a blunt object. He determined that the worst of Peter's injuries was the wound to his head, which measured about one inch in size and had fractured his skull. Dr. Bowell determined that Peter had died of shock and a hemorrhage due to his head wound. The doctor determined that he would hold an inquest into the strange death of Peter Gunness, as he had suspicions regarding the entirety of Bell Gunness's story. In December of 1902, Dr. Bowell held the inquest at the Gunness farm. Dr. Bowell had Bell and her daughter walk him through the events of that date leading up to their finding of Peter sprawled on the parlor floor. While Bowell had serious misgivings about Bell's story, when he released his findings the day of Peter's funeral, Dr. Bowell determined that Peter's death was accidental due to the, quote, falling meat grinder from the shelf. Unreal. I know. Right? Crazy. Exactly what we were saying earlier. Yes, it was. (laughs) While Dr. Bowell's report stated that Peter's death was an accident, that didn't stop the rumor mill from spreading far and wide. Many folks agreed that Peter's death was suspicious, and folks were whispering that the suspect seemed most likely to be the now-widowed Miss Belle Gunness. A few months after Peter's death, Belle mysteriously gave birth to a young boy whom she named Philip. What made the baby's birth so strange is that when the midwife made it to Belle Gunness's home to help deliver the baby, she found the baby fully cleaned and dressed. Seems suspicious. Just a bit. (laughs) Belle was immediately found outside that day washing clothes, which doesn't make any sense. Pretty suspicious. Uh, yeah. 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 Especially the fact that she was a 43-year-old woman. I feel like when you're older, you don't bounce back as quick. Yeah. Yeah, it's not as common. And to just be, you know, like, that was hard labor to wash clothes back then. It's not like it is now where you're just throwing it in a machine. Back then, you're hand-washing them, and then you're hanging them to dry. Yeah. you know, there's a lot of scrubbing and there was a lot of, yeah, it's a little, little crazy to be assuming you'd be doing that right after giving birth. Oh, yeah, definitely. One of the other pieces that seemed strange was that the young infant seemed too old to be a newborn baby. Mm. Mm-hmm. Many of the townsfolk and Belle's neighbors continued to discuss these mysterious happenings over at the Gunness farm. Many folks believe that Belle Gunness hadn't even given birth to the young infant and instead had adopted the young baby and then hid that fact by lying and saying she had given birth to the baby. Which, I mean, you can get away with a lot of things, but that seems a little crazy. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. That's extreme. Yeah. I mean, she'd adopted her other kids. It wasn't like it wasn't, you know? Yeah. It wouldn't have been that weird. 
It's, it's a weird thing. It is. <laughs> Not long after Peter's death, Bell began submitting ads to the Norwegian newspapers that existed at that time throughout the Midwest. These were a way for many people to put requests for hired help and even business partners out into the world. Unsurprising, Bell Gunnis posted in those ads to request having a man who would be interested in partnering with her in the Gunnis Laporte farm. 42 acres was a hard bargain for many men to resist, and so Bell Gunnis started having many male visitors come and stay with her to work on her 42-acre farm. <sighs> it's not known at this time just how many men reached out to Bell Gunnis via her ads in the newspaper, but there are several men who met some mysterious fates not long after going to sea and work on the Gunnis farm. One of the male visitors was a man named Olaf Lindbo, who was a Norwegian immigrant. Olaf answered one of Bell's help-wanted ads, and so he brought himself and his life savings of $600 with him to Laporte, Indiana. A few weeks later, Olaf disappeared, and Bell told her neighbor that she needed help on her farm as, quote, Olaf had left in the middle of a major job, unquote. Yeah. <sighs> Just gonna oh, sigh. Bell. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, Bell. Several friends and family members of Olaf Lindbo reached out to Bell Gunnis not long after Olaf disappeared. Each time Bell responded to them saying she hadn't heard from Olaf since he had left, and each person received a different story as to why Olaf had taken off seemingly out of nowhere. Bell told Olaf's father that he had gone to work out west to make his fortune. She told Olaf's friend that he had gone back to Norway to see their new king crowned, and others received similar strange stories as to where Olaf had run off to. But no one seemed to ever hear from Olaf himself after he was last on Bell Gunnis's Laporte farm. Oh, poor Olaf. I Man. know. Yeah. He should not have brought his life savings. Ugh. Nope. It's like, yeah, she's so motivated by money. It's awful. Yeah, it's crazy. So in 1905, a few months after Olaf Lindbo disappeared, another man came to stay at the Gunnis farm. His name was Henry Gerholt, and like Olaf, he had answered an ad in the paper that he had seen that was posted by Bell Gunnis. A few weeks later, Bell yet again went to her neighbor's home, asking for his help in harvesting her farm, as her newest hired man, Henry, had also seemed to suddenly quit and leave the farm. Bell told her neighbor that Henry had taken ill and wasn't able to help her with the farm. She told the neighbor that Henry only took his satchel and some clothes and went off to Chicago one night. Interesting enough, Henry left his nice heavy fur coat behind, as well as his trunk of clothes. Several more men came and suddenly disappeared from the Gunnis farm over the years. In 1906, Bell hired a man who lived in town to dig several holes in the area near her hog pen. The holes were about six feet long and three feet wide, and they were four feet deep. So now we know where the uh, pig rumor comes from, Ash. I, I think it's from <laughs> Bell Gunnis. Yeah, jeez. Jeez. Its origins are here. Yep. I Blows my mind. I was writing the research for that, and I saw it, and I was like, oh, well, now we know. Now, now we know. We know. <laughs> it's monsters like Bell Gunnis that literally put this idea out in the world. Yeah. It really uh, is. Ugh. I mean, just, ugh. So Belle told the man that the holes were going to be her trash pits. Yet another one of the visitors to the Belle Gunnis' farm was that of Andrew Helgeline, a Norwegian farmer who hailed from Aberdeen, South Dakota. In 1906, Belle's daughter Jenny, her first adopted child, had become a teenager, and she had grown to be a beautiful young woman. She had hit that age where men were starting to notice her and wanted to court her for possible marriage. One young man who had become Jenny's friend and her confidant was a farmhand named Emil Greening. Jenny had confided in Emil that Belle wanted her to go off to college and had arranged for Jenny to attend school out in California. Not long after Jenny had told Emil of her mother's plans for her college career, Emil went to visit Jenny to wish her goodbye as she left for college. Instead of the youthful Jenny, Emil was greeted by none other than Belle Gunnis. Belle told Emil that Jenny had already left for California that very morning. Emil didn't question Belle, although several folks noted that no one had seen Jenny leave the farm that day. 
With Jenny gone and seemingly not coming back to the Gunnis farm, Emil Greening decided it was time to resign his position, and so his position was opened up. Ray Lanthier was hired in August 1907 to replace the young Emil Greening as being the Gunnis farm's hired man. Ray genuinely seemed to like Belle and had harbored his own hopes of marrying Belle Gunnis and becoming her partner in running the Laporte farm. There are many rumors that Ray, who was many years younger than Belle Gunnis and a good-looking young man, had become Belle's lover over their time together. It seemed that Ray Lamphere had become someone that Belle Gunnis had begun to spend a lot of time with, and it had risen Ray's hopes that he would one day run the Gunnis farm with Belle as his wife. That was until another man would come into the picture and change Ray and Belle's relationship. In 1908, Andrew Helgeline came to Laporte to visit Belle for a couple of weeks. Helgeline had been holding correspondence with Belle since 1906. He was a 49-year-old wheat farmer from South Dakota. Belle had spent two years luring Andrew Helgeline to her 42-acre farm. She boasted to him that the farm was prosperous, that she had 70-plus acres, she was maybe exaggerating a bit, and basically other such lies. She also was said to have told Andrew in her last few letters to him to not to tell anyone that he knew just where he was going and that he should sell all of his possessions, including his own farm, in order to get as much cash as possible and then to come join her on her Laporte farm. It took longer for Belle to woo Andrew to her farm than it had other men who fell victim to Belle's enticements of wealth and land. Eventually, however, Andrew succumbed to Belle's pressure and he made his way to the farm and, unfortunately, his eventual fate. Ray, who had up to that point been staying in the Gunnis' home, had been given the room Emil had held before him. Ray became extremely jealous of Andrew. Within moments of Andrew's arrival on the Gunnis' farm, Belle demanded that Ray vacate the house and go sleep in the barn. She had determined that she had no more use for Ray as her temporary lover and partner. Within two weeks of Andrew's arrival on the farm, he and Belle Gunnis were spotted at the First National Bank of Laporte. Belle and Andrew went to the teller and Andrew pulled three checks from his coat jacket. Belle and Andrew informed the teller that they wanted to cash the cashier's checks, but unfortunately for them, the bank had to send the checks away for collection and that the bank couldn't give the couple the cash that day. In fact, it would actually take at least five days before they could provide Belle and Andrew cash for those checks. Andrew seemed to take the news in stride, but Belle was stated to have been agitated and openly aggressive regarding the lack of cash being given that day. In the end, the teller won the battle, and both Andrew and Belle left the bank without any cash. About a week later, Belle and Andrew arrived at the bank after being notified that their cash funds were now available. The amount of cash given was $2,839, which is the equivalent nowadays of about $75,000 all in cash. Ooh, Andrew was never seen alive after that day. Yep, can already see what happened there. It became clear when Andrew did not return home to South Dakota, his brother, Azel Helgeline, realized that something was wrong. Azel inevitably found the letters written to Andrew from Belle Gunnis and was able to track his brother down to the town of Laporte. While Azel Helgeline was discovering those tempting letters written to Andrew from Belle, Belle was firing her hired man and former lover, Ray Lamphere. In February of 1908, Belle and Ray parted ways. The two had gone from friends and lovers to bitter rivals in a short amount of time. Belle kicked Ray off of her farm and even went to the local authorities to complain that Ray was harassing her. The next month, Belle had Ray arrested for trespassing on her farm. Ray pled guilty to the trespassing charge and paid $1 in fees. After, quote, firing Ray, Belle replaced him by hiring Joe Maxson as her new farmhand. It was during this time that Azel Helgeline started writing to Belle Gunnis, trying desperately to find out what had happened to his now missing brother. On March 28th of 1908, Belle went to the courthouse to file an affidavit alleging that Ray Lamphere was insane and that he was going to her house every night and looking through her house windows. After interviewing Ray Lamphere, the physicians who checked on Lamphere, one of them, being Dr. Bo Bowell, noted on the affidavit from Bell that they saw no signs of insanity in Ray. With her attempts to label Ray Lamphere as insane, 
Bell opted to try and have Ray arrested on charges yet again for trespassing. This is now in early April. During this time, Bell received another letter from Assel Helgeline, wanting to see the evidence that Bell had said, such as a letter from Andrew, about his whereabouts. Bell informed him that she couldn't provide him with that letter, as it had been, quote, stolen. Oh my, this woman is a compulsive liar. She just goes from one lie to the next so easily. Like, it's crazy. Right? It's, uh, it's unreal how easily she goes from, gosh. like, one lie to the next. It's, it's just nonstop. Yeah. I believe in karma too much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yet again, Ray Lamphere was found guilty, and now his fine had increased to $5. And because Belle is a wench, she yet again has Ray Lamphere arrested one week later from his last trial. At this point, while Ray is yet again hanging out at the county jail, Belle received another letter from Azel. In this letter, Azel tells Belle that he wants to come to Laporte to set up his search for his missing brother. Once more, Ray Lamphere has to go to trial for another accusation from Belle Gunnis for trespassing. Luckily for Ray, his lawyer was able to obtain eyewitness accounts, and they were able to give Ray a concrete alibi as to his whereabouts the night that Bell was accusing him of trespassing. As Ray had been with John Wheatbrook, who lived six miles out of town, and it proved that there was no way that Ray was able to travel to the Gunnis house and vandalize it. This time, Ray was acquitted, and Bell actually had to pay the fees. Finally! Gosh. Ha ha. <laughs> she deserves to have to pay. The like $6. <laughs> I mean, actually at that time though, that's a lot of money. That's true. That is true. And we all know she doesn't like to give up money. Mm-mm. On April 27th of 1908, Belle drove her buggy into the town and stopped at her lawyer's office. She told the attorney that she lived in fear of Ray, who she was convinced wanted to murder her and her children. She informed the attorney that she wanted to make out her will and testament in case something happened to her. Her will stated that, quote, her property, both real and personal, to her three children, Myrtle Aldolphine Sorensen, Lucy Bergelat Sorensen, and Philip Alexander Gunnis, providing that in this case of the death of any said children without issue before her death, the survivor is to inherit the whole of the property and provide also that in the case of the death of all three said children without issue, the whole of the property should go to the Norwegian Children's Home of Chicago, unquote. Belle then stopped at a store and purchased candy, cake, and toys. She allegedly told the clerk that she was, quote, going to give the children a little treat, unquote. Yikes. Oh, no. Yeah, that never bodes well. She then proceeded to the general store where she purchased groceries as well as two gallons of kerosene. The next morning on April 28, 1908, at 4 a.m., Joe Maxson woke up to the smell of smoke and something burning. Immediately, he realized that his room was filled with smoke and he was choking and coughing. Joe Maxson threw open his bedroom window. It was at this point that he realized that the Gunnis' house was on fire. Joe immediately ran towards the area Belle and her children slept to try and wake them up. He yelled fire, but he was having a hard time breathing due to the smoke. Joe made his way down the stairs and out of the house. Once outside, he immediately tried to catch his breath, and then he tried to re-enter the burning house. The flames, however, drove him back, and he was unable to get the Gunnis family that slept inside the now-engulfed house. That afternoon, the bodies of the family were found inside the now-ruins of the basement. One thing of note is that the three bodies of the children were found next to a body of a woman. The woman's body was missing her head, and the skull was never recovered. Assel Helgeline had grown tired of Bell's denials of knowing just what happened to his brother. On May 1st, Assel received an envelope from the teller who had handled the cash transaction for Andrew and Bell at the bank. That envelope had the front page of the Laporte Daily Herald from April 28th in it. The article was about the fire at the Gunnis house. It was at this point that Andrew decided to set out for Laporte, Indiana in order to try and find his missing brother. Joe Maxson and a neighbor of the Gunnesses, Daniel Hudson, were looking through the rubble trying to look for clues as to what had happened to the Gunness family that day. They were also looking for Belle's missing head. Azel joined the men in their work and helped dig through the remains of the house. The next day, Azel returned to the homestead and searched along the property hoping to find any sign of his missing brother. 
And it was at this point that he asked Joe Maxson if there had been any holes dug on the property. Joe readily informed Assel that he and Bell had in fact dug holes for rubbish a few months before. The three men went to the location with their shovels in hand and began to dig up the rubbish holes that had existed on the property. They immediately began to smell a distinct stench that worsened as they dug down further. Four feet down, the men had found the target of the smell. They hit something rather hard with their shovel and uncovered a gunny sack. There was a tear in the sack, and through it, the men could see what looked to be a human neck. Next to the stack, they found the severed arm of a man. Joe immediately ran for the buggy in order to go and get the sheriff. Assel and Daniel continued to dig. Joe soon arrived back at the farm with Sheriff Smutzer, as well as the coroner, Charles S. Mack. The men were able to uncover the remains in the ground, and while decomposition had definitely taken hold of the body, Azel immediately recognized the face of his missing brother, Andrew, who lay broken and dismembered within that gunny sack. It was at this time that a realization had begun to take place among the men. Sheriff Smutzer asked Joe Maxson if there were any other rubbish pits that were on the property. Maxson easily pointed the sheriff to another nearby spot. Once more, the men began to dig. Three feet down, beneath a layer of trash and rubbish, the men found more dismembered body parts. At this point, the shed needed to be converted into a makeshift morgue, while the authorities began to dig throughout the Gunnis property. It was around this point in the investigation that Ray Lamphere, the man accused so many times of being a danger and threat to Bill Gunnis, was arrested and brought to the jailhouse. Among the remains, they found the body of a younger female. The woman had only one distinguishing feature that they could tell due to the decomposition. It was a lock of long blonde hair. Jenny Olson had that exact hair color in life. It turned out that young, beautiful Jenny had never made it to college that year. She had never made it to California, but instead had been brutally murdered and left in an unmarked grave. At the time of her body being found, she would have been only 18 years old. Oh, that's awful. I know. Just awful. Especially, like, she was so innocent in all of this. I know. It's so sad. So sad. In total, the authorities uncovered 13 bodies from the horror show that had been found below the soil of the Gunnis Farm. Onlookers came from near and far to watch the digging and investigation occurring on the Gunnis Farm. Unsurprising, police immediately had Ray Lamphere brought in from a cell to interrogate him further. They asked Ray what all he knew regarding the disappearances of Andrew and Jenny. Ray answered their questions and was immediately returned to his cell. Newspapers in the town were reeling from the discoveries hidden below the soil of the Gunnis farm. Gunnis was referred to as the, quote, high priestess of murder, the, quote, mistress of the castle of death, and of course, quote, hell's princess. Early on, rumors began to spread that the body of the decapitated woman found in the cellar of the burned-out shell of the Gunnis home did not in fact belong to Belle Gunnis, but could possibly belong to another victim of hers who was left there to convince everyone that Belle Gunnis had died in that fire, when instead she had skipped town for parts unknown. On May 19th of 1908, a piece of bridge work was found while sifting through the debris of the fire. In the bridge work, they found it had two human teeth with porcelain teeth and gold crown work in between. Bell Gunnis's dentist identified the teeth as the ones he had made for Bell Gunnis. It was officially determined that with the evidence of the bridge work obtained, the body found in the cellar of the decapitated woman did in fact belong to that of Bell Gunnis. And while her bridge work was found, her head was never discovered. Ray Lamphere was brought to trial in November of 1908. The main defense was that the body from the fire was not Bell's, despite the coroner's ruling and despite the evidence of her bridge work being discovered among the debris. On November 26th of 1908, the jury found Ray Lamphere guilty on the charge of arson, and they did sentence him from 2 to 21 years at the state prison in Michigan City. He was acquitted of the murder charges. On his deathbed, Ray Lamphere confessed that he had helped Belle Gunnis escape by helping her plant the body of another murdered woman in the basement with the bodies of Belle's already murdered children. 
Lamphere then set the house on fire, allowing Belle Gunnis to escape. However, there is supposedly a second confession from Lamphere that was given that stated that he had in fact killed Belle Gunnis and her children with an axe and had left them in the basement and then burned the house down. It also stated that he had helped Belle with the murders previously by burying the bodies. Like so much of this case, there's just so much left to the unknown. After a hundred years, it's still unknown whether Hell's princess herself, Belle Gunnis, escaped that fiery inferno that day in 1908, or if she died at the hands of her jilted lover, Ray Lamphere. Oh, man, that case. Yeah, that's that's a wild one. Yeah. Yeah. I, oh, you know, I read a really cool book on this, and... I, I know this case really well, and I still go back and forth on exactly how I think this all played out. Yeah, it's really hard. Because when you think of bridge work, is that something that's just on the surface of the teeth? Or is that like in your gums? Do you know? I think it's like a partial denture, I think. Okay. So it's it has like some real teeth in it. And at, back then, I think it was they were all custom made to fit. So I can understand that the dentist could identify that. But I also think it's, I mean, you can remove it. It's, like I said, it's kind of like a partial denture, so it comes in and out, I think. Yeah. So I don't know if that's really, that still seems really circumstantial to me to use that to identify the woman, especially when her head wasn't found. Yeah, I'm not convinced. <laughs> I was going to ask, are, do you think she escaped or do you think she, she died in the fire? Personally, I uh, I totally think she got out of there. I do too. I think she used her feminine wiles one more time on Ray Lamphere, and I think she she got him to help her with it. I, I think that his deathbed confession was probably the likely truth that he had aided her in escaping. Yeah, because, I mean... He was in it. If you were to punch someone hard enough and get that bridge out of your mouth, you know? Mm, mm-hmm. And the fact that they couldn't find her head... Yeah, to me, it seems like they had just dumped another body in there. Why didn't she have her head in the first place? Like, yeah, that's not really a common thing. The children were all intact for the most part, you know? Yeah. It just seems really suspicious. So, I mean, I guess the assumption here is that Ray killed her. Oh, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Ray killed her. So then he, in theory, would have decapitated her, I guess, is the way they were going with this. Yeah. I don't know. I I think she made it out. I, I do. I definitely think she... That woman was wily. I just don't think she would have let Ray Lamphere get the best of her. I I don't. Yeah, I totally agree. And were the children's heads attached? Was it just Bell that was missing? It was just Bell's that was missing. That's what's also weird about it, too. Yeah, that is just so strange to me. That's, And I wonder, I mean, obviously it's way back when, if there was another woman yeah. around there that was missing. Yeah, you know, or they could have gotten her from a nearby town. Who knows? Like... I don't know. I mean, I think Belle Gunnis was a full-blown serial killer at this point. So I think she absolutely would have had no problems killing somebody else. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I mean, I thought that poor Jenny was away at college, you know, the whole time. Yeah, poor Jenny. I, I don't understand why she killed Jenny. That's the one I could not figure out. And there wasn't really much information. The only thing I could think is that she killed Jenny because she was jealous. Because it was very clear that Jenny was becoming very alluring to men. And I think Belle did not want any threat to her ability to lure men to the farm in order to get money from them. She didn't want to have to fight Jenny, I think, for attention. Oh, yeah. And I mean, how was Jenny paying for college? Was that something Belle was paying for? Or like supposed to, but wanted to save her money? Yeah, it's it's a the whole thing is just very strange. All of it. Uh, And so I got to ask, do you think that Belle killed the original infants earlier on? (sighs) <sighs> or do you think it was just freak accidents well, it's, that happened? Well, it's hard because, like, it was way back and yeah, things happened. But to happen so close together and so often, I think she was kind of dabbling in the whole being a serial killer oh. situation. So you think she started with the infants? I kind of think she did. Like, less mouths to feed. Right. Could have gotten money from fostering. I don't know how it was back then. But I don't think you did back then, but I think there was a benefit to her adopting children the way that she did because I think it lent itself to people feeling sorry for her, maybe giving more money and giving more donations and stuff. Yeah, plus, I mean, she seemed like a very jealous person, like you were saying with the whole Jenny scenario. 
What yeah. if she was jealous of the babies? What if um, her then husband so was... was giving too much attention or, oh, what a beautiful right. baby or all that. So Right. The other thing I thought too with the babies is if she did murder the babies, that it was maybe too because um, she's one of those that seems like she was really obsessed with the idea of being a mother, but didn't actually want to be a mother. I don't know if that makes sense. Do you know what I oh, mean? Oh, yeah, it does. Yeah. Like she was super like into the idea of like being this to-do wife and having all these children. But then, you know, kids are hard and kids don't always have good days and they're not always exactly what you want them to be or do. And so I I don't know. I wonder if maybe her temper got the best of her a couple times. Yeah. So do you agree? Do you think that? um, I uh, You know, it's funny. Initially, I didn't. But you've kind of swayed me. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. I was originally on the camp of uh, these being more accidental deaths just because, I mean... That takes a whole different level of low to kill a baby. So I was like, no, you know, I'll give her the benefit of the doubt on this one. But now I'm like, oof. You know what? Actually, I bet she did. I don't know. I think she might have. Because, I mean, babies are so innocent, you know? I know. You are their caregiver. So she probably figured if she can take the life of an innocent baby, then she can do anything. Jeez. Ugh, what a monster. I know. Ugh, that's awful. Awful. So, like, why do you think that she murdered the men? Uh, so I don't know. It, it's it's hard to say because like we said, we didn't agree with things back then, but no. females were very not top tier in, in comparison to the men. Um, the men were the providers, all that jazz. Right. So not our opinion, but that was the societal thoughts. Yep. So I kind of maybe see it as she knew she could get men to come into her mm. farm. She had the acreage. She had the personality, I guess you could say, to have the men come to her. And then she kind of just was like, I don't need no man, you know, like kind of just right. X them out of the equation, got her money and just kept going. Yeah. I, I mean, she definitely money was a big factor for her. She actually kind of reminds me of a female H.H. H. Holmes, not in the torture fact. She didn't really seem to torture her victims as far as, at least I didn't find too much information on anything like that, but she did do a lot of insurance scams, which is absolutely something that Holmes did. And I found that very interesting. It's a very like narcissistic personality trait that I found very interesting that Belle Gunnis did at this time as well as a female serial killer. It was just something that had kind of stood out to me, but I do think money was a big, big motivator for her. But I think it also, I mean, I I honestly think that she liked to lure these men in, take their money, and then destroy them. I genuinely think that she was a full-blown serial killer. So I I don't think it was just the allure of the money for her. Yeah, now that you say that she is like the female H.H. Holmes, I totally see that. Right? Yeah, definitely money the motivator. But yeah, she probably just also enjoyed it. Yeah. It's very awful. Sick. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, we don't often do ones where we're talking more about the serial killer than the victims, but this is one of those cases that you're just like, boof, it's bananas. Yeah, and I actually, um, I mean, being a crime nerd, I didn't, I think I've heard of Belle Gunnis, but I didn't really go too deep into her story. Um, Yeah. And then you brought it up that you wanted to do an episode on her, and I was just like (laughs) blown away. I was like, this case is bonkers super it's crazy well and i had read this book it was called uh hell's princess and it is phenomenal and that book is actually how i had heard about this case i'd never heard about it before but i was looking for some new true crime books and this one kind of came up on my recommends so i checked it out and i just got it on amazon kindle and it's awesome it's still available too but i highly recommend it i'll put the information about the book in the details of this episode for folks but it it is a really well-written true crime piece and and it was just really interesting they have some old photographs things like that so the author did a phenomenal job on this one yeah and it's interesting too because a lot of the female serial killers that we do see a lot of the times they're kind of like angels of death they poison their victims yeah she's a full-blown like black widow this one yeah yep like and she's violent like you're right you know a lot of times with female serial killers it is like overdosing them with pills or smothering things like that it's not as um gruesome i was kind of surprised that bell was willing to go to the full-on gruesome piece i don't know how to say that without it sounding really awful yeah i get i get what you're saying yeah yeah she's a monster (laughs) that's where i'm still that's our stance (laughs) that's our stance anything you take from this episode it's that (laughs) 
She's a trash human and a monster. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no other way to look at that. <laughs> Definitely not. Yeah, so speaking of Belgunis the monster, she murdered innocent children, innocent men that she literally lured to their deaths with the promises of land and wealth. And Belgunis is probably one of the earlier serial killers that shows that it isn't only men who can have cruelty welded into their core. Sometimes there are women serial killers who are equally as heinous to their male counterparts. Belle Gunness was truly Hell's Princess. And, you know, like I was saying, there's this phenomenal book I've read on this case, which is called Hell's Princess, The Mystery of Belle Gunness. And it was written by Harold Schechter. And it is available on Amazon Kindle. And it is so good. I will definitely give you guys the information on how to get it. But highly, highly recommend this for any true crime fans. And with that, nerdlings, we conclude the case of Belle Gunness, whose case still remains a mystery all these years later. Did she escape the house and live out her monstrous days in another part of the U.S. or even the world? Or did she die at the hands of Ray Lamphere, whose jealousy couldn't contain itself? For now, there are only questions on this case and not many answers. But perhaps one day with DNA and forensic science, there could be more answers as to what happened to Belle Gunness and her children that night in 1908. And if you liked this episode, or any of our others, feel free to leave us a review on iTunes or your preferred podcast subscriber. You can also hit us up on our Instagram at CrimetimeNerds, or check our case notes out at CrimetimeNerds.com, where we post references and photos of all of our cases. We also have a Twitter account, which is at CrimetimeNerds, and an email you can reach us at, which is crimetimenerds at gmail.com. Until then, you crime-loving nerds. <laughs> <laughs>